Hello, my name is Richard Fern of the University of Warwick and I'm joined today by Simon Collinson who is a reader in international business at the Warwick Business School. Uh, your most recent work has been in the emerging economies of India and China and the effects on the global economy but also the effect that they might have on each other. Perhaps you could talk us through some of the issues here, uh, explaining to us who's winning at the moment, China or India? Well, if you take a pure uh, economist view, then hands down China. I mean, both these countries started off with the same GDP in about 1990, and now China's GDP is about double India's. So it's both a bigger economy and it's it now, and it's been growing consistently at a faster rate, about 9 to 10%. India's been growing at about 6%. So in pure economics terms, and in terms of just sheer scale and size, then China is ahead. Um, but you you've got to understand both these are giant economies. So you've got about one in three of the world population lives in one of each of these countries. You've got almost a billion in India. In fact, just picked a billion in India by latest counts, and you've got 1.3 billion people in China. So they're both huge, and a question is, part of the question is, you know, how they stack up against each other, and part of the question is how together, jointly, they raise some challenges for Western economies and Western firms. In terms of those numbers, in terms of those volumes, the only power capable of matching them is, of course, the USA. Yeah. And the USA is way ahead, let's, let's face it. China has just um, overtaken, this year, the UK. It's now China is now the fourth biggest economy in the world. Uh, India is some way behind that. The latest prognosis, in fact, there's been a couple of very useful studies literally in the last few months on this. The latest prognosis is that it'll be about 2026 before China reaches the US size. I've got a figure here from... Sorry, I... Go on. I've got a figure here from uh, Business Week which cites China and India account for a mere 6% of global gross domestic product. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So gross domestic product is spread around a lot of countries. So, you know, when you're talking about the biggest and the the top or the largest country, there's a lot of countries. So no, you know, except for the US, no one country dominates that much. But the prognosis is that if China does catch up, and if it goes along current trajectories, it'll catch up by um, 2026, then um, India will be about third at that point. But the US is a long way ahead of the next largest, which is Japan. We're talking scale effects here, and it's difficult because um, there are different definitions of precisely how you measure the size of an economy. So how has China managed this? China's managed this in a number of ways. Both the, the, the political and the social as well as the economic are important in understanding the historical development here. Both these countries have liberalised. I mean, they're, they're both very large countries. Historically, they have had huge potential, but they've been closed economies. China liberalised under um, Deng uh, Xiaoping during the 1980s. India fully liberalised much later, really starting in 1990, 1991. Liberalised means they opened up. So they opened up their economies to push exports and become a player, players on the world economy. But secondly, they opened up to foreign direct investment. So one of the reasons China's doing so well is that it has 10 times, currently 10 times, the volume of foreign direct investment, that is multinational firms investing in its economy, than India. So it's attracted more foreign direct investment. And a second issue is that foreign direct investment has, and the economy as a whole is much more based on manufacturing than services. And manufacturing builds GDP much faster, better than service. And yet, service that is where India's strength is, isn't it? 
India's strength is in services uh, compared to uh, China's strength in India, correct. Um, and also R&D. Well, that's debatable. That's that's a moot point at the moment. Um, if we get the if we get the service figures, thirty nine percent of China's GDP is manufacturing, sixteen percent of India's GDP is accounted for by manufacturing. So China is bigger in manufacturing, but it's accelerating its growth in services and in R and D in both services and manufacturing. China is investing a huge amount. Is that? The amounts that are being invested at the moment in China, are they as efficiently invested as they are in India? No. Uh, and that's a very good metric that uh, McKinsey, amongst others, have picked up on. Um, if, you, if you look at the balance, China's been growing at about 9% a year with an investment-to-GDP ratio of around 40%. India's been growing at 6% with an investment-to-GDP ratio of 25%. What that means in, in short term is that... Uh, Effectively, India is making better use of the capital that is invested in India. But another reason for that ratio, or at least an additional reason, is the fact that, again, we have services versus manufacturing. Services, uh, services investment doesn't show up in GDP figures as much as manufacturing investment, because GDP is about production. Would it be true to say that a great deal of the global success of both of these powers has been the result of labour costs? There's no question that the attraction for foreign direct investors uh, and first of all the attraction to foreign direct investment secondly export success and particularly in the case of China is built on cheap labour that's certainly the case so companies want to go there to set up manufacturing they invest in manufacturing because it's cheaper um, that's the first point but the second point is exports are cheaper because they're made by cheaper labour but that's a simplification um, in the India case Initially, the Indian software industry, for example, was kicked off by simply having cheaper programmers based in India. And the outsourcing industry that's grown up in India, again, a service industry, has grown up on the basis of cheap labour. But India certainly, and China increasingly, they are going beyond cheap labour as the key advantage. Um, the attraction to go to China now is increasingly to do with better expertise, the science and technology base, the education system, uh, uh, infrastructure is very good. There are a variety of reasons to go there. Cost is just one. In some ways, that's good news for these countries because you can't maintain a comparative advantage on labour costs because naturally enough, eventually your labour your labour become uh, better educated. As become better educated, they demand higher wages. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, there are two issues there. One is that, that it, it's there's a challenge for both countries, and the challenge is to develop across a broad range of industries other advantages beyond cheapness, you know, cost. Um, China is doing it across a broader range of industries. India is particularly good in just a few sectors, particularly things like outsourcing and software. Biotech, to a certain extent, is very good, and it's, it's getting a reputation in media, Bollywood, for example, films. But it has not managed this across a wide range of industries, whereas China is a very broad-based economy, and in the manufacturing sector, it's moving beyond the cheap labour advantage faster than we anticipated. So it's a challenge for the country, but because effectively as labour gets more expensive, you have to move beyond that as your own advantage. But it's a real challenge for Western companies who assume, uh, and I talk to a huge number of executives who still have this assumption, that China is all about cheap labour. That's the one reason to go there, but it's also the one advantage they have as a competitor. And this is just not true. I mean, effectively, China is getting so good at innovation, process and product related innovation and R&D, it is moving up the value chain away from cheap you know, cost advantages faster than we anticipate. 
And that's an adaptability challenge for Western managers. Effectively, it's something we've got to cope with. What about the cultural differences facing India and China? India has a colonial legacy. China has a revolutionary legacy. How does, how does this affect doing business in those two countries? These are key differences, and they're sometimes unseen differences, particularly when foreign direct investment uh, managers plan foreign direct investments. They see costs and they see the financial sides of the cost benefit of going there, but they don't see the hidden side, the culture, the society, and the politically driven regulatory environments. India has some advantages from its legacy, from its history. English language uh, is, is very widely spoken. That's a huge advantage in software and in media and in outsourcing. Um, it also has um, you know, a relatively well-understood Western-influenced legal system uh, and a bureaucracy. However, the interesting thing about China is that its legacy is communist, and the interesting thing is that bureaucracy is actually in when you talk to managers, in fact, a lot more clear-cut. Um, people understand what central government is about and they get less constraints from the regulatory environment in China than they do in India. And that's an interesting difference between the two countries. Uh, India's got a key problem, too, with labour market reforms. It needs labour market reforms to improve its attractiveness to investors and improve the efficiency of some of its areas of industry. And again, the interesting thing about a centrally planned or previously centrally planned economy like China is that it has very little um, social security for example, very few rights for labour this is bad socially but this is very good for business, this means that actually in, on top of cheap labour there are very few trade unions and businesses can do much more about what they want to do in this country than they can in India I mean I think there's a second issue which is to do with infrastructure and again India is criticised for a, having a weak infrastructure, it does have problems with telecommunications broadly, transport systems, energy. China is investing masses and is developing its infrastructure much faster and it's a much more efficient broad-based infrastructure than India. I think the final thing to talk about, um, which touches on society and to a certain extent the political system, but the education system in, in India has for quite a while been fairly elitist. There is a very excellent high level of education amongst a small group of the population a lot of whom have been Western educated and have gone back to India to set up businesses. China has a much broad-based education system. It almost has a 100% literacy rate, which is uh, unheard of given its per capita uh, income levels. I mean, it's, it's a relatively poor country still. So there's a highly educated workforce, uh, particularly um, in the lower income groups. In addition to that, it's rapidly building up a very you know, good elitist, top-level, excellent group of Western educated people. And combining those means that there are strengths in terms of its science and technology and expertise compared to a lot of other countries. What are the challenges facing these two powers now? There's a number of, there's a number of challenges facing the two powers. I think both have growing pains, if you want to put it that way. And, and you know, there are a huge number of uh, forecasts put forward, particularly for China now. Um, given the scale and the speed of its growth, that sort of says, well, it will be number. Uh, you know, number one economy in X amount of time where it will do this and it will dominate this sector. And in fact, there are some pot potential problems with that growth uh, path. Um, first and foremost, possibly, I would suggest the potential social backlash from rural economy, from the rural part of the population. There's a growing elite in Beijing, which is not only controlling quite a bit of the political power, but also has a lot of the money. The, the, the 
the distribution of wealth is increasingly moving towards the Indian and the sort of Brazilian levels where you get an elite which is both wealthy and has a grip on power and that's could be potentially a problem for the country. That's a challenge. I think there are also challenges in, in both countries to internationalise better. They're both big economies, so they're attractive to Western multinationals. The trick is getting their companies to perform well on the global stage. And again, there's a lot of forecasts about Chinese companies and Indians taking over British and Western companies and taking over markets. And There's still a long way to go. There are some key lead companies in China including Lenovo that bought out IBM, uh, IBM's manufacturing, PC manufacturing business, including Huawei and a few others. And in India, there's TCL and uh, a number of the other uh, Indian software companies that are doing well. They're the tip of the iceberg, and the rest of the iceberg is less competent at internationalizing. I mean, the threat is there, but it's not honed yet. And in fact, there is some exaggeration about the speed of internationalization in terms of companies coming out of these kinds of countries as threats to Western businesses. How should the West respond to these new emerging economies? Um, that's an interesting question. I think there's a lot of people talking about that now, particularly both at the political level, um, which is about the changing global geopolitics, um, which is an interesting issue, particularly, I think, for the USA, with the prospect of possibly, you know, in our lifetimes, being no longer top dog. Um, I think at the industry and the business level, I think there are also challenges for companies. Um, the good companies at the moment know what they can do and how they can leverage the opportunities of these countries. They go in, they're, they're leveraging both the cheap labor and the expertise and the advantages of locating there. They're tapping into growing markets really well. I think the better companies, again, are starting to restructure their own global value chains and their own global organizations to also take advantage of the longer-term strategic benefits. So you've got, uh, you've got clever companies that are reorganizing cleverly to take account. Weaker companies are too short-termist. They're going in, they're assuming you've got to be there to sell to the market, and in a lot of cases they're just losing money because they don't mm. understand what they're getting into. The short-termist companies are also going in and not really understanding how much they're giving away when they're setting up alliances or joint ventures within both India and China. Give me an example of each. Clever companies, I'd say Microsoft is well up there. Uh, Microsoft has set up a very good R&D centre in Shanghai and it's, it's doing both the high-tech stuff, it's learning and it's using uh, high-level Chinese expertise um, in, in good ways for its R&D. But at the same time, it's doing the lower-end stuff and it's, it's selling to the market very effectively and it's doing the basics to get profit from that. Um, I think in terms of of companies in India that are doing well and there's a, a range of companies again including Microsoft which has a very very strong alliance with a couple of companies in India for its MS.NET platform um, where again Microsoft is a good company to show where it's both tapping into cost advantages and high technology uh, R&D innovation advantages. I won't n mention names but companies that I've come across in a couple of studies we're doing um, particularly looking at UK companies getting into China smaller firms that have less time to really do their homework are diving in because they see cost benefits particularly in manufacturing where they're shifting things from the Midlands or they're shifting things from the UK because cheap labour is an attractive thing and they're finding actually there are additional costs they haven't thought of and they're losing money and smaller firms can't afford to lose the kind of money they're losing there and um, there's, a, there's a learning curve and you've got to do your homework and you've got to talk to experienced people to understand what the challenges are a great deal of your research here at Warwick has been looking at the um, the lessons learned and the advantages of 
joint ventures and working with emerging economies. What has your research shown? Yeah, it's true. We're doing some very interesting projects, uh, which are about halfway through under the UK's uh, AIM at Warwick, the Advanced Institute of Management at Warwick, at Warwick Business School. And um, so far, what it's showing is, again, that savvy companies, companies that do their homework and have experience of these things, are really doing well in China. They're both tapping into an incredibly fast-growing market, and they're adapting products to do that. They're also learning lessons in terms of using China as a source as an input into their R&D and their innovation programs and integrating their China operations with the rest of the, the business. We're also finding um, companies that are bluntly making daft mistakes because they haven't done their homework and they don't know what they're getting themselves into. There's a herd mentality relating to China and a lot of people are getting in, a lot of companies are getting in with a naive view that, that there are quick, quick wins um, and there are lessons to be learned by those companies that are more experienced. So um, we're, 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 you know, we're putting these lessons together and we're working with managers and UK policymakers in terms of how companies have to change and adapt their value chains to take account of China. I think there's also broad-based research going on across the university, which is fascinating. Um, the Centre for Research into Globalisation and Regionalisation, CSGR, is a, is a great centre and they've got both... Uh, cultural specialists, political specialists, sociologists there who are understanding China from different perspectives. Sean Breslin is one of our experts who speaks very, very good Mandarin, uh, has an associate chair at a Chinese university and really has a deep understanding of the political shifts that are so critical to understanding the economy and the business infrastructure in China. So across the board, we have a multidisciplinary approach to the Chinese issue and uh, we're adding value, I think, uh, uh, both to management but also to the policy agenda in terms of the UK policy for China. 